I would invite you to turn to the book of 1 Kings. The book of 1 Kings and chapter 13. Let's go before the Lord and ask for the power of His Holy Spirit to illumine this text for us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, open our minds to your word, that we might know what the message that you have there for us. But Lord, we ask for more than that. We ask that you would open our hearts, that you would cause your word to grow deep within our heart. Lord, we ask that you would strengthen our wills, that we might not only hear your word, but that we might obey it and do it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are not going to believe what happened. I mean, really, you are not going to believe what happened. Have you ever had someone come up to you and say that? And they describe for you the oddest of circumstances, a really awkward situation. That's what's happening to a couple of the characters in our story this morning. A couple of young boys come home from church, well, maybe not so young boys, and they come to their father. Maybe this would be more appropriate on Father's Day, but they come to their father and they say, you're not going to believe what happened at church today. It was the most awkward of situations. And maybe you can enter into that thought process. I experienced that a little bit myself when I was newly in the South, in Jackson, Mississippi. When I had decided 10 minutes before dinner to try and return something quickly at Walmart. And as I stood in the line with about 10 of us in line and one return clerk who was not moving very quickly, and I started to look around and said to the cashier, you need to get someone else over here. She kind of looked at me oddly in panic, saw the manager, and I, I said to the woman behind me, would you please hold my place? And I walked over to him and I said, you've got to get someone else over here. There's 10 of us in line, and this line isn't moving. And he kind of looked, well, uh, uh, went back in line. The man in front of me turned around and he said, you're from the north, aren't you? And everyone was very uncomfortable. I had made everyone very awkward by pressing that point. But that's what happens here this morning. We see a man of God come in and make life very awkward for a king, a kingdom, and even another old prophet. But really the awkwardness isn't caused by the man of God's personality or the fact that he's from the south in this instance instead of the north, the awkwardness is because of the power and the authority of the word of God. That's really what this text is about. You may look through it and say, two prophets, somebody lying, think lions, donkeys, what's going on here? What weaves throughout this entire text is the power of the word of God. And that is power that is available in your life. So the first thing we will see is the difficulty and awkwardness that comes from not believing the word. When we hear the word and we do not believe it, 
And then secondly, from not obeying the word. You see, sometimes we can believe the word, but not obey the word. Not believing the word, not obeying the word. But there's a third thing we need to do with the word, and that is to apply the word. And so there's a third awkwardness that comes from not applying the word to ourselves and to others. Not believing the word, not obeying the word, and not applying the word. Well, let's look then here, beginning at verse 1. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the, against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. So the man of God comes in, and there's really no other way to say it, he comes in crashing the party. He comes right in. This is a very solemn occasion. It's not just church. This is Mother's Day, Easter, Christmas, and building dedication all rolled up into one. Jeroboam has just set up the great rival temple at Bethel. You remember that temple we looked at last chapter? I want you to, if it bothers you, I want you to take your thumb and put it over the big 13, dividing the chapters. Because it's really one narrative. You see, Jeroboam has set up this false worship, this idolatry, in which he tries to replace the temple and replace God. And he is in all his glory. He's in his, his best suit, so to speak. And he is standing up at the temple, much like Solomon was in chapter 8. He's getting ready to inaugurate the new temple. And what do you do when you inaugurate a temple? Well, you do the same thing that Solomon did. You do the same thing that, Lord willing, I will do when we dedicate our building. You talk. You tell people what the Lord has done. You tell people what you're going to do. But there's a difference here. Solomon prays that great prayer, that huge, majestic prayer of 1 Kings 8. Jeroboam can't get a word in edgewise over God. He's just about to give perhaps this great speech about how wonderful this is and about the, the satellite temple at Dan. And imagine a prophet, dirty from a journey, probably dust on his cloak, elbowing northern Israelites in their finest. Excuse me, pardon me, out of the way please, excuse me, got to get through. Everyone looking at, who is this? He's so rude. Doesn't he realize what's going on? That's the king. This is, this is like the dedication of the temple. Who do you think you are? And look at him, he's dressed badly. He must be one of these southern jokers. Come on! They don't know who he is. You can imagine Jeroboam. He doesn't know what to do. You know, that happens when you're leading and something is going on that you don't expect. You're not sure, should I react? Should I not react? What should I do? And this man comes up, though, and before he even gives Jeroboam a chance to speak, he thunders out who he is. He says, thus says the Lord. 
and you could probably hear a pin drop at that point. You see, this rude gentleman is directed here at this time and at this place. This is a God-directed incursion. He came out, our text says, by the word of the Lord. God told him, you must go and you must do. And he says, thus says the Lord, O king. You see, God is at work here. If you look down through, you'll see this phrase, the word of the Lord, in verse 1, in verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 5, and in verse 9. God is in charge here at the great opening of Temple Bethel. And he gives an unbelievable word from God. It's a harsh word. O altar, you will be broken. Sacrifices shall be made on you of the priests of the high places. And he gives a very specific and directed word. He says, a son shall be born to the house of David. And his name, his name is Josiah. Now, you need to understand, we, we think, oh, Josiah, and we want to flip, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 pages in our Bible and see, we know King Josiah, we know when he's coming, good king of Judah. But you have to understand this from the perspective of those who were there. There's only one other place in the Bible where that specific a prophecy is made. It's when Isaiah says, my servant Cyrus is coming. This is unique in nearly all of prophecy. He gives a name to a man. doesn't just describe him. He gives him a name. And this prophecy is not just unique. It is bad news. Think about it. Hey, you, the great altar of this great kingdom with the ten tribes, guess what's going to happen? Somebody from the southern kingdom is going to come up here and desecrate you. Imagine that. They've just tried to secure the kingdom. As a matter of fact, Jeroboam is counting on this altar to secure his kingdom. You remember last week? He didn't trust God, so he set up these two temples. He's trying to set things up. And now here is a man of God saying, Good try, Jeroboam. No cigar. You can't fool God. God's threats are going to come true. And he says, This altar is going to be torn. That would be news of great import to Jeroboam. It's the same word that's used in chapter 11 when the prophet tells him that he's going to tear the kingdom away from Rehoboam and Solomon. And he, when he tears the cloak. So Jeroboam knows that it's on. He knows that God's threats are going to come true. Have you ever ignored a reminder that's come your way? I don't mean the little windows that bing up in your Microsoft Outlook or something telling you you have an appointment in a half an hour. I mean a reminder of how you should be treating your wife or your husband or your children or your parents. A reminder of what's called for you at work. You see, Jeroboam gets this reminder from God. It's a very stark reminder. But what's his reaction to this? He fights it. He's given this reminder. The party crasher comes in, 
And Jeroboam's response is to fight the word of God. Because look at what he does. A man comes in and says, thus says the Lord. You might imagine Jeroboam to ask some questions. If he was a nervous, skittish man, he might be concerned. No, not Jeroboam. He's a man of action, remember. And he sees him and he puts his hand out and he says, get him. Just like that in Hebrew. Seize him. But something else happens to this confident man of action. As soon as he does that, his hand becomes uncontrollable. He tries to control God. Now he can't even control his hand. It's all paralyzed up. We don't know whether it's either shrunken or stiff in place, but he can't use his arm anymore. We might imagine he's being very forceful. Men jump out from the, from the sides. They're about to capture this man of God, and they look at their king who is stricken with fear because he doesn't know what to do. Now imagine that feeling. Have you ever felt that way, that you thought you might be in charge, and now all of a sudden you're not? Imagine what would happen if, say, for example, a certain executive on a certain television show said to someone, you're fired. And they turned around and said, you know, you're fired. Get out. And then men in coats came in and took him away. We would think, that's not how this is supposed to happen. And that's exactly what the bystanders are looking at here. You see, Jeroboam has heard the word of God. He doesn't believe it. He thinks he can go against it. And the result is fear, paralysis, defeat. He doesn't know what to do. But Jeroboam is a crafty man, isn't he? He's not one to give up so easily. He's not one who's willing to say, well, you know, maybe I was wrong about this word. Maybe I need to believe what God said. Maybe I need to go where he tells me to go. No, he says, if you can't win him with force, kill him with kindness. He tries to then manipulate the word of God. He's tried to fight the word of God. He can't do that. And then he moves to manipulating the word of God. He says, let's try another tactic. Prophet, show me how powerful you are. Please, pray to God that he would heal my hand. You see, Jeroboam then tries to bargain with God. He can't fight God, but he tries to bargain with him. Perhaps you've been in that place. Perhaps you have sat in a hospital bed and said, Lord, if you just heal me of this, I'll do whatever you say. Perhaps you've looked at your bank account and your ability or lack thereof to pay the mortgage and said, Lord, if you just provide, I'll do whatever you ask of me. You fill in the blank. Maybe for you it's if I could just get into that school. If I could just get that girl to smile at me and like me. If you could just, Lord, you do for me, and then I'm sure to do for you. But you see, it's the same kind of unbelief. That is the same way of reacting to God as violence and force. It's an attempt to manipulate God, not through power and violence, but through words and bargains. And so... After he sees the power of the man of God, Jeroboam says, listen, verse 6, 
My hand's been in store, restored. Verse 7, come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. He says, you've done your part. I understand. Why don't you come home and we'll talk this over. We'll see if we can work out some pluralism. There's got to be room for both Jerusalem and Bethel. You see what he's doing? He's basically saying to the prophet, um, could I buy some insurance, please, in case I'm not right? You know, I still think I'm right and God isn't, but I'd like to get some insurance. And I think oftentimes we're tempted to do that, aren't we? Maybe that's the way you look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe for you, Jesus Christ is premium fire insurance. Something that you purchase and you put in one of those fire safes and lock it and you have to pull it out at the last minute. But you see, that's not how God works. God doesn't sell fire insurance. He doesn't sell flood insurance or theft or auto. God is a father to people. God doesn't want Jeroboam's leftovers. He wants him to believe his word. You see, God's word cannot be bought. And so the prophet says, not only am I not going to eat, I'm not going to stay, and I'm not even going to take the same road back. I'm going to go out another way. Now that should give you a hint at to the level of unbelief of Jeroboam. Because there's another incident in the Bible where a strong, powerful king is confronted by someone and they say, you know, we're going to go back a different way. We see that in Matthew, right? Chapter 2. Where the wise men leave Herod and they go back being warned by an angel another way. These are men, both Herod and Jeroboam, who do not believe the word of God. And so at this point, life is very comfortable for us, isn't it? This is the way the Bible stuff is supposed to work. People who are in the world and who are enemies of God don't believe God's word. They get punished for it. We're in the church. We believe God's word. We're okay. And we look and we point at Jeroboam and we go, if only he could be a better person and believe. But you see, our story doesn't end there. It gets a bit odder. As another character is introduced, but more of him in a minute. The next thing that we see is what trouble comes from not obeying the Word of God. We've seen the trouble that comes from not believing the Word of God, gives you uh, paralyzation, gives you the end of your kingdom about to come upon you. But now we see what happens when we're not obeying the Word of God. And our man of God leaves, and he starts out well. This is another motif in the Scriptures. He starts out well. He leaves right away. He doesn't stick around to bargain with Jeroboam. He doesn't get a snack. He doesn't race over to the tables like the kids do and make sure that he's first in line and he gets the best snacks. No, he's right out the door, gone. He's obeying the command that God has given to, to him. And he's very clear about that command. This is not an unusual or difficult thing to understand because he repeats it not once but twice. In verse 8 and verse 9 he says, I'm not supposed to eat or drink, I'm supposed to leave right away. 
And later on in verse 16, when the next man comes on the stage, he says again, I'm not supposed to eat or drink. I'm supposed to leave right away. He has this memorized better than our kids, their Bible memory verses. He rattles it right off. He starts out very well. He's bold in leaving. He's not afraid at all of all of these soldiers and the power of Jeroboam. But we have to think about this. It's not enough just to start out well, is it? How many times have we heard this? Solomon? Aaron? Even Jeroboam? It's not enough to start out well. We must persevere on in believing and obeying God. And so we see the next thing that's important here is that his teachers must listen to. Not just teach, but they must listen. The man of God needs to listen and obey the word of God. Have you ever had that feeling? Maybe you've been at college, or maybe it's in high school, or maybe it's even in your house, and you're talking with your teacher... They're not listening. They're talking, but they don't listen to the question. They don't listen to the response. Perhaps they're not even listening to what's written in the book. And so, this is the problem then with our man of God. He goes out and he sits under a tree. And this other old prophet comes up. His sons have come home and said, as we've talked about, you're not going to believe what happened at church. And the old prophet understands something. We'll look at that in a minute. And he gets on his animal right away and goes off. It's kind of an odd reaction, don't you think? Man of God comes in and preaches against basically his temple because he lives in Bethel. And his response is, i got to go find this man of God. I've got to go talk to him. And he comes up and finds the man of God sitting under a tree. And so we start to see the problems that arise in the life of the man of God. And you may say, you know, wait a minute here. What's the big deal? The man of God's just taking a break. He's sitting down. This is all the problem of the old man from Bethel. He's the guy that lies, the text says. There's a fact here that you may not know. You may look at it later. Maybe it's in the back of your Bible. There's one of those color maps. You may know that Bethel is only six miles from the border of Judah. Six miles. That's what? Not even a whole afternoon's walk at a good pace? If you're on an animal, it's probably even faster. So here we have this man of God who is so bold that he comes in and tells the king the word of the Lord and he's about to get home. He's been told to go home right away and he says, you know, I think I'll take a break. I need to rest. Maybe he's thinking about, I wonder what that reward was that the king had promised me. Pretty big gold calves there. A lot of people in nice clothing there. And he sits and he waits, and he doesn't really do what he's supposed to. And then this old man comes up to him, and he says, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? Verse, 13, verse 14. And the man says, I am. And the old man says, Come home with me 
and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go in with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water, nor return by the way you came. And so the old man says, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied. And so he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Do you see what's happening here? This man of God, the one who knows the word of God, who's been given a specific command by God. He didn't have to scour through and apply his Bible. He had a direct word with very specific instructions. Go do this and then go right back. And what happens to him? He allows bad advice to take him over. He's no different than Jeroboam who listened to the counselors who said build the calves. He's actually no different than Rehoboam who said I'm going to lay it on the people after he talked to his counselors. He talks to others and forgets God. He doesn't obey God because he thinks it's plausible not to. Do you see that? He's faced with a choice. He could say to the old man, yeah, I'll come home and have dinner with you. Or he could say to the old man, you know, that's plausible, but I did hear directly from God that I'm supposed to go home. So, you know what? I'm going to give God the benefit of the doubt, not you. I'm going to obey God rather than you. Now, you may be speaking for God, but it seems odd to me that God spoke directly to me, and he didn't even speak directly to you. You said angels told you. He could have said that, but he didn't. He didn't obey God. He allowed his own uncertainty to sway him away from God. You know, there's another thing that's happening here. He's perhaps the exact opposite of Jeroboam in another respect. You see, Jeroboam doesn't want to hear anything from God until he sees God's signs and wonders. You know, God can promise him personally. God can send his prophet to tell him what to do. And Jeroboam says, yeah, 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 whatever. You shrink up his hand, he's all ears. But you see here, the man of God, he's swayed by the unusual. He has the very word of God, and there's an unusual situation, and he's swayed by it. This should be important to us even today, that the word of God is the standard by which we act and obey. Nothing else. Perhaps this prophet, this man of God, was swayed because it was a fellow clergyman. Do not believe anything I say because there is reverend in front of my name. Tested by the word of God. Do not believe anything someone else tells you simply because of their authority. Test it by the word of God. You can almost hear one commentator says, the Apostle John in the background yelling at this old prophet, this man of God, test the spirits. See if they're of God. Test them. But you see, he doesn't. He says, do as I say, not as I do. 
And there's an interesting way that it's phrased. It says here he disobeyed the word of God in verse 21 and in verse 26. But the Hebrew word is actually the word for rebel. It's the same word, Mara, that we hear about the Israelites rebelling. You see, this man of God rebels against the word of God. He does not obey. And what happens to him? God comes and even by this lying prophet gives him a true word. He says, your life is forfeit. And this man of God goes off and he's killed in a most unusual way by a lion. Not by the fact that there was a lion there. It's not just in the Wizard of Oz that there are lions, tigers, and bears. There's that even out in Israel at this time in history. What's unusual is he's killed by the lion and the lion decides to take a rest break right by a freshly killed man and a live donkey. Now, if anyone knows anything about wild animals, especially lions, that would be highly unusual. It's actually so unusual that it becomes a tourist attraction. Look at what happens here. Verse 25, And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. This is a sign and wonder from God. God makes it obvious that he wants obedience. Well, what do they learn from this? The answer, sadly, is not much. There's difficulties and judgment for not believing the word of God, for not obeying the word of God, and now we see for not applying the word of God. There's judgment that comes from not applying the word of God to others. You see, this old prophet of Bethel brought ruin upon the man of God. He was likely just thinking of himself. His motive was probably the same as Jeroboam's. He heard about this prophecy, and the first thing that he thought was, the temple's going to be destroyed, and the priests are going to be sacrificed, and our kingdom's going to be overrun. How can I stop that? I know. I'll run and go get this prophet and lie to him and see if I can change what's going on. He wasn't thinking about the man of God at all. Maybe he thought it wasn't even really that big of a deal to disobey God. You see the danger that comes there from not applying the word of God to others? It brings about the death of this man of God. And the text is very emphatic about this. The Hebrew actually is not, but he lied to him. It's actually only two words. He lied. Very abrupt. To remind us that this old prophet didn't care for God's truth, or God's word, or God's people. Just himself. And so he abuses his own position. Where does this lead us? Who does this remind us of but Jeroboam himself? Because you see, it's not just a problem not to apply the word of God to others. It's a problem not to apply the word of God to ourselves. Our author brings Jeroboam back into the picture at the end of this chapter. It's like there's an interlude to tell us what's going on and describe the background. 
And then we go, meanwhile, back at the temple, jaws are open. Ladies are shifting their hats uncomfortably. And you know what Jeroboam does? Never mind. Let's go on with this. He acts as if nothing's happened. Can you imagine that? If someone came in here this morning and denounced a prophecy from God, and there were physical manifestations from it, and the leaders were all cowed in fear, then after he leaves it, they just said, well, let's carry on, just as we were doing. That's what happens. Look at verse 33. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again. God had brought a mercy to Jeroboam. He's appealing to him again. He says, stop the course that you're on. Listen to my word. Apply it to yourself. This threat is a threat of mercy, just like the merciful warnings in the Scripture. Have you ever heard the warnings of the Scripture and been tempted to ignore them or downplay them? It's prevalent in our society, even in the sense that we think about the Old Testament as this harsh, nasty section of the Bible. And the New Testament is all about love and peace and anybody doing what they want to do. When in reality, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks more of hell than he does of heaven. You see, those threats are not there because the Lord delights in that. It's because he's warning us. He wants us to stay in the path of life. He wants us to apply the word of God to ourselves. Have you done that this week? If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, have you applied the word of God to yourself? If you are his blood-bought child, are you applying the word of God to your life to give your life meaning? To give your life certainty. That's what this text is telling us. Because you see, prophets can't escape the word of God. Neither can kings. Jeroboam will meet his end shortly. Only safety is found in the word of God. And there is a frightening phrase here in chapter 33. Excuse me. Uh, chapter 14, verse 34. And this thing became a sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. The scripture speaks of the end of men and women. It speaks of the end, the death of God's people in this fashion, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his son. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. But you see, for Jeroboam, his death makes him go off the stage. What stays is his sin. For us to see, for all eternity, this blot on Jeroboam will remain in the eternal word of God. His dynasty does not last, but his sin does. Finally, we see the difficulty that's caused by not applying the word of God to those who depend upon us. We, just, we see it here in Jeroboam's life. His whole kingdom is about to come crashing down.
because he didn't believe the word of God, obey the word of God, and apply the word of God to his people. He kept God's word from his people through his actions and through his attitude. This is a great responsibility for pastors, for elders, for fathers, for mothers. Apply the word of God to those who are under your care. That's where true safety and power is found. You see, in conclusion, sometimes God's word can lead to awkward situations when you need to have an awkward conversation with someone about some of their actions or about some things they've said they believe. But you see, there's a difference between following the truth of God's word and following the falsehood of the world. It's a difference between life and death, between repentance and falling, And you see, that's what makes all the difference. When we listen to and believe and obey the word of God, life is not perfect, but the Lord sheds his grace on us. He grants us repentance. He grants us life and power. That's what the theme of this odd story, the tale of the two prophets is. May you hear this story and not be absorbed by the wonder of it. I wonder why he lied. I wonder what his motivation was for going after him. And instead be in awe of the power of the word of God. A power that must be believed, obeyed, and applied. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our God. And that you give us your word and you are gracious and merciful to us. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would set your word in our hearts. That it might grow. That it might assure us, prompt us, and comfort us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you peace, now and forever. Amen.
Jesus, we love you.